Well, welcome. We're, we're in the middle of a sermon series going through the book of Acts together. And you may not realize this, we're in like week 12 going through the book of Acts. The cool thing I love about it is it hasn't felt like we're going through a book. It's felt like fresh, fresh manna. And uh, I love how God just works things out. And when we don't even plan it, he just kind of lines things up. And uh, the thing I love about God's word is that it is, it's timely, always because it's timeless. A lot of people think, well, this is an archaic book. It has nothing to do with like 21st century. Like, you know, this isn't, this doesn't relate to me. Um, I, I beg to differ. I think it relates to us in everyday life all the time. And uh, today we're going to we're going to pick up in the middle of Acts chapter 9. We started out last week talking about Saul, the, the Saul of Tarsus, who was uh, an oppositional leader of, of, against the Christians. And it was going and re- responsible for the death and imprisonment of, of a lot of Christians. And he was heading to Damascus with letters from Jerusalem to, to take people that he found that were followers of Jesus and bring them back um, and put them in prison in Jerusalem. And on his way there, he is blinded by a great light. He falls off of his horse or his emu or whatever he was on. And uh, all of a sudden, he encounters Jesus, the living Christ, and uh, they have a conversation. He is forever changed, but he's blind. He's led into Damascus, and God gives a vision to a follower of Jesus in Damascus named Ananias. He says, I want you to go, and I want you to lay hands on this man. And who is it? He says, Saul of Tarsus, the, the known terrorist. Yes, that's the one. And he goes, and he lay hands on him. He is healed. He can now see, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Great things are happening. Great things are in store. And if you know anything about Saul of Tarsus, he is later known as the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of our New Testament and affected millions upon millions of people. Um, this man is, uh, is now what we're about to kind of encounter and see a little bit of the process and the journey that he was on now that he is now saved, filled with the Holy Ghost. And so... Um, would, you, would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word? Acts chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 19 and read down through uh, verse 31. It starts right here. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem... He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the, to the apostles, and he told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. <laughs> When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And then throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, the church enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I I thank you for your word. Um, It never comes back void. 
I pray that uh, even as we go through some of the process and the journey of this man who affected us today, um, I pray that we would learn something, that we would glean something that would affect our lives today, right now, in the phase of life, the area that we're in. I pray you'd give us hope and a future. In Jesus' name, amen. You be seated. Thanks. So um, here's, here's the point that we're going to talk about today. And if you've got notes or, you know, you've, you've got one of those pieces of paper in your way in or you're on NLC.today is that before Saul of Tarsus became known as the Apostle Paul, he had to go through a process. And uh, that's true of all of us, right? That's true. All of us come to this place of getting saved and, and, and God works in us. And then there's a process that we have to kind of submit ourselves to. And today we're going to look at some, at least the beginning portions of Saul's process. And, and I say that because we always feel the pain of our own process. I feel the pain of my own process. Um, many times I don't recognize the pain in other people's process because I don't feel your pain. I feel my pain. I can empathize. I can sympathize. I can recognize your pain. But the reality is, is every single one of us is very egocentric. And so we kind of, we, we feel our own pain. That's the pain that we're most concerned about. And sometimes we don't see it in other people. And what happens is that when we, when we start to think that way and act that way, we begin to compare our lives to the highlight reel of other people's lives. Because we know our pain, but we don't see theirs. So we compare our lives to the filtered Instagram page of our friend. Think, man, it must be nice. It must be nice to always have your hair done. It must be nice to not just wear yoga pants. It must be nice to have your teeth brushed, right? It must be nice to have perfect family. It must be nice to have your kids always smiling. It must be nice to have a perfect husband. It must be nice to have a perfect family. It must be nice to always have your house picked up. It must be like, so we look at this and we, we compare our lives and the, the nastiness of the pain and the struggles that we're in. And we're like, man, it must be nice to just have, be an overnight success. But we don't see the pain. We don't see the struggle. We don't see the years that it took to become the overnight success. We don't see the 100-hour the work weeks. We don't see the, the building of a business to get to the place where they are right now. And, and, and it's very easy for us to, to look at other people and, and compare. In verse 20, we see this right off the bat. It says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So he gets, he gets saved, falls off of his emu, and he gets prayed over, he now can see, filled with the Holy Spirit. The first thing he does is he starts to preach in the synagogue. He, he, he literally moves from being a persecutor to a preacher. The same synagogues that he was sent from Jerusalem with letters to imprison Christians, he is now preaching Christ to in the same synagogue. I mean, this is a radical, radical, radical conversion. And everybody knows it. It, it's, it, everybody sees and knows why he came and they're seeing this craziness and not understanding what's going on. Verse 21, we see this. It says, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on this name, the name that he's preaching about? Isn't he the guy? Hasn't he come here to, to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Like, isn't that why he came here in the first place? Can I just tell you that sometimes the hardest thing for us to do is to walk out our faith in a place where people know our past, isn't it? For some of you, that is like so true in your life because why? Because maybe you were raised in this area. Maybe people know your past. Maybe it's just your family members and they know. 
They know how you were. And maybe it's very, your past really is kind of creeping up there, like it's very close to your present. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to walk out our faith and diligence even amidst people that know our past. And we know, and we know that. Like sometimes our past is hanging around our present. And what our past likes to do around our present is accuse us. Oh, you think you're better now? Oh, because you go to church? Oh, okay. You got baptized? Great. Oh, okay. Oh, you think that like things are different, that, that, that things are changed? Let me just tell you, it would have been so much easier for Saul to just go to a place that didn't know him. Instead, he gets saved on the road to Damascus, continues in Damascus, and then starts preaching to the very people that he was supposed to be sent to in prison. And they're all wondering, like, um, is, this the, is this the guy? But I, I don't want you to miss this, that sometimes it is your past that is the continual confirmation of your conversion. Sometimes when we're confronted with our past and maybe it's kind of hanging around and accusing us, it is a continual confirmation of the change that God has done in our lives. And even though it's, it's skulking around us and, and accusing us day and night, we, we realize it reminds us of, of the change that God has done. And maybe for some of you, you can, you can understand this because like, just as people are like, uh, isn't this the same guy who, who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem? Maybe some people are like, isn't this the same guy that wreaked havoc in Sacco? Isn't it the same girl who everybody knows about in Bedford? Like, are you kidding me? Like, I don't buy it. Because they know you. They know your past. They know kind of what you've been. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is what Saul did, which he, he faced his past and he just stood in the middle of it over the long haul. Because what we find is that we can change locations, but our past always seems to follow us. We can say, oh, I'm going to try to run, outrun this thing, but it's, it's, a, it's a race that we never win. If I, oh, maybe if I just kind of go to a different church or find a different friend group or, or, or move, move to a different state or, or, or change my job, I, I'll be able to outrun my past. But the, what we find is that it is only living differently over the long haul that starves our past of its power. You can't outrun it. You can't outpace it. You come to the place where you just face it. <laughs> Say, yes, Satan, that is exactly what I used to be, and that's not who I am anymore. It's not who I am anymore. Yeah, well, are you sure? I mean, you're, you're the one who wreaked havoc in Sacco, right? I mean, we used to do that at Bentley's. Remember, we did that. That was what we did. Come on. But that's not who, who I am anymore. I'm, I, I'm living differently. He continues in verse 22, it says, Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and, and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Can I just say, sometimes we read the Bible and we're like, oh yeah, Paul, tried to, yeah, they tried to kill him a bunch of times. But that's his pain. But can I just tell you, if that was you, you'd be like, they tried to kill me. Right? You wouldn't be like, yeah, 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 they tried. There was a plan. They tried to kill Paul. No, you'd be like, no, they tried to kill, murder me. You won't believe this, right? So, so I just want you to understand that like, 
Saul's problem is not that he's trying to convince the Jews that he's converted and is now a believer in Jesus. His problem now is that they see him as a dangerous liability that needs to be dealt with. They see him as a guy who is spreading the very virus that he came to eradicate, and he needs to go. They're ready to kill him. So the first thing, we've got three things I want to just kind of hit you with today. The first one is this, that it's important for us to realize that as we look at the process that Saul, Paul went through is that Paul was chosen by God, but he was opposed by people. Do you know that you can be chosen by God and yet still walk in opposition to people? Like, there are some times where um, things don't always go the way that we would hope that they would have gone. But opposition does not negate your calling. He goes from being a hunter of Christians to now being uh, hunted. Like, I want you to understand that he was not being celebrated. Nobody was like, that's great. He's a Christian now? Awesome. It's not like how it is today. Today, we just like, we love it when a celebrity comes out as a Christian. And we're like, oh my gosh, he said Jesus in an interview. Did you hear that? That was awesome. Right? Or we like, we got a sports hero who throws a touchdown and is like, and we're like, be still my heart, right? Like, you're my people, right? That guy's a Christian. I know it. I knew it. I knew it. Right? We get all, we get all crazy. We get like, I, I just want you to understand this is not happening to Saul. Nobody's like, oh, man, I knew he was a Christian. This is awesome. Nobody's excited about it. He's not drawing applause. He's actually drawing up plots to be killed. Nobody's excited about him being a Christian. The point is this, is don't be surprised when Jesus sets you free that you will have opposition that you didn't have before. Don't be surprised. And this, this, this reality that he's living in um, is the reality that, like, sometimes you find opposition that you weren't even looking for. You're just trying to serve Jesus and do your thing, and opposition finds you. And so he's being hunted. They're looking to kill him. So Saul needs to get out of Damascus and avoid being killed. Kind of a big deal, right? You'd be kind of it'd be a significant thing for you. Uh, verse 25, he says this, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. So Damascus is like a walled city and there were like houses and like kind of that, that would be built on the top of the wall and there would be windows that would overlook outside of the city. And so I took a wastebasket and put him in it and just kind of lowered him down on the outside of the city because the only way out of the city is through the main gates and they're watching the main gates. They're just waiting for him to walk out to kill him. Like, well, this is the only way out. So they take him out of there. He gets out. He's free. What does he think? He's thinking, I got to go to Jerusalem. Why? Why would he go to Jerusalem? Well, the, the disciples are in Jerusalem. It's going to be safe there. People, the Christians are in Jerusalem. This is where it all began. This is the one place that I got to go. This is, the, is going to be a safe place. Verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him not believing that he really was a disciple. So think, just put yourself in his position. He barely escapes being killed by Jews in a wastebasket. And then he gets to the place that the church is, and they don't accept him either. They probably thought that he was a secret agent, a spy, right? Oh, yeah, he's just faking us out. He's trying to get us to, to, to kind of ingratiate him in, and then he's going to arrest us and, and take us out. Would any of you really blame them? Think about this. 
we got life groups kind of starting up here in a month and Pastor Tom comes to you and you're like, man, you know, Pastor Tom, like, I, I'm going to start a life group in my house. We're going to meet Thursdays at 630. And Pastor Tom says, listen, um, I, we just got a little, someone submitted something that they'd like to join your life group. They're a known terrorist and responsible for killing Christians. Um, but don't worry. They said that they're a Christian now, so it's going to be fine. Your kids can play with them. It'll be great, right? What would your response be? You'd be like, oh, Pastor Tom. <laughs> Our group is really full, like full to very full, like over full. And I don't think we can kind of bring him in. I would love to. He sounds really sweet, but no. And we've got a dog and you know what I mean? Like you'd come up with any reason in the world to not accept him. You'd be like, no, maybe other people will accept him. But, but maybe, look, at, you have to feel for Saul here. It must have been absolutely maddening, frustrating to experience opposition from Jews. They want to kill him now. Those were his people, and now they've turned on him to kill him. And now he's getting opposition from Christians, and they don't even want to be around him, and they don't accept him into their group. So he is a man without a people. He has no people anymore. The Jews don't like him, and the Christians won't accept him. They don't even want to associate with him. And this can be... For some of us, this can be a very difficult place to be in because sometimes the deepest wounds that a Christian experiences come from other Christians. It's like, I just don't, I just don't understand. I, I left this and I met Jesus and I'm trying to find my place in this church and I don't feel like I belong. And I feel kind of pushed back. And so I just want you to see this. Like Saul had every reason in the world to be like, peace out. I'm all, I'm all good. He had every reason in the world to be like, you know, I, either I'm, I'm just going to back away from this whole Christian thing because it doesn't seem to be working and nobody really wants to accept me. Nobody even will talk to me. They all think that I'm a liar and a cheat. Like, uh, or go back to the thing that you used to know that was your community. But I want you to understand this. Like despite his reasons, he never stopped moving forward in what it is that God had called him to. Because let me tell you, when God has called you to something, when you know that you know that you know, when you have experienced Jesus Christ, and he is, <laughs> I'm telling you, you come to this place of like, um, I understand that this isn't working, this isn't working. I'm just called to, I know what I'm called to do, and I'm stuck on that. What did he know? He knew two things. Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. He's blind three days. He's not eating or drinking. Lord says to Ananias, this other believer, right? He says, go, this man, this is the first thing he knows. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And the second thing he knows is this. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. So the first one, let's recap. First one, you were chosen by God to proclaim the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, right? He's going to tuck that one deep, right? It's going to hold, hold me tight. The second one, uh, you will suffer for the name of Jesus. That one is less appealing. We'll just focus on the first one, right? Like, uh, I don't necessarily like the whole suffering thing. The first one's awesome. Second one, not so awesome. But I want you to understand this. Because he knew what he was called to, when he experienced opposition, it had no hold on him. Do you see that? Like, I mean, 
He knew that he was called to proclaim the name of Jesus. And as soon as opposition, as soon as, as soon as he wasn't accepted, as soon as all of these things didn't seem to be working out, he knew that this is what he was called to do. And so it had no hold on him. So he wasn't saying, oh, man, you know what? Forget it. This thing isn't working out. These Jews want to kill me. These Christians don't like me. I guess it's, I'm going to go eat dirt, right? This is going to be, I'm done with this thing. Oh, he's like, actually, Jesus forewarned me about this that I am called, and the presence of persecution doesn't negate my calling. The presence of opposition doesn't negate my calling. Can I exhort you in something? It is not anyone else's job to cultivate your calling. It's not your husband's wife. It's not your, it's not your wife's job. It's not your, it's not your father's job. It is, it's not even my job. It's not anyone else's job to cultivate your calling. And Sometimes the greatest thing that we can offer God is our focus, our attention. What do I mean by that? We used to say the greatest commodity in the world was money, and then we said, no, it's time. I think in our day and age in the 21st century, our greatest commodity is our attention. Hold on one second, I got something going on. Uh huh, yeah, just keep talking to yourself. What? Okay. How often is this our story? The, it's not even just our time. It is our attention. It is our focus. The greatest thing that you can offer God is your attention and your focus, which means it's not even so much that you're focused on the main thing. Sometimes giving God your focus and attention means that you're ignoring the distractions that would love to eat up your time. I know, they're really important. A lot of important people that are posting a lot of great things that you're comparing yourself to. But in the midst of all of this, he's saying, give God your focus. It's, it's a lot like what Nehemiah does when he's rebuilding the ruins of the walls of Jerusalem. He's up there and he is focused on this thing and he is building and he's got all these haters who are hating and are calling on him. Hey, you should come down. You, you know, people are talking about you and you should probably come down because I want to actually meet with you. And I got things to talk about and, and I heard you said something about me and I, there's some drama that I'd love to, you know, eat up your time. And, and Nehemiah's answer time and time again is, I'm sorry, I'm doing a good work and I can't come down. Yeah, but did you know that this was going, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm really, I, I would love to come down and into your drama. I'm just telling you, I'm doing a good work and I can't come down. Sometimes the greatest thing you can give God is, is your focus. He was literally tethered to his calling, the wall, right? Even in the midst of people trying to pull him off of it. The second, second thing is this, that Paul was chosen by God. Yet God took years, years to prepare him. If you've got a, a real paper Bible, I know these are, they seem to be more and more um, rare these days. If you've got a real Bible, um, pull that out and turn to Acts chapter 9. And if you've got like your, your digital version, it'll still work. It'll be cool. Um, go to Acts chapter 9 and uh, go to verse 22. And it's, it's right at the end of 22, after 22, and right before you read verse 23. There is this, it's, it's in all of your Bibles, it is this little white space. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. Probably didn't notice that. It's, it, in your Bible, verse 23 is like a, well, uh, it's like its own paragraph. It starts its own paragraph. So right before that, you'll see a little tiny white space. Now, 
Why is that important? Now that you can see this, verse 22 ends and then verse 23 begins with these words. After many days. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. After many days. This term, after many days, essentially defines the white space between verse 22 and, and verse 23. So the question, and I hope that you're asking, that I was wondering, like how many days is many days? A couple days? 10 days? I don't know. That's like many days, right? Like a couple weeks? Five, I don't know, five weeks? That'd be a lot, a couple months. How, how many days is many days? Most scholars believe that many days is actually three years. That's a lot of many days. That's more than I thought I would say for many days. So between verse 22 and verse 23, there's three years. So if you've got your little Bible, you can put a little circle around the little white space so you can still see it and then put three years next to it. Maybe you'll come back to it and you'll see it later on. You'll be like, oh yeah, I remember this, right? Saul spent three years from the time he was converted and fell off his emu to the time where he escaped in a wastebasket to head to Jerusalem three years in Damascus. Three years of, of preparation and prayer and pruning and plots to kill him. Three years before he actually meets any of the apostles. Three years. How do we know it's three years? Because Paul tells us. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, he recounts this time in his life. And you can read Galatians 1 in your own time, but he says this in verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days, which I would say would be many days, right? <laughs> 15 days is a long time to stay with somebody, right? It says many days, many days, three years. His white space of preparation lasted three years. And I'm sure he was asking God over the course of his three years, why are things moving so slowly? I mean, think about it. This guy knew the Bible probably better than any of you. He is now a believer in Jesus Christ. He had an encounter with the living Jesus, right? He is now filled with the Holy Spirit. He has this zeal that he came to persecute Christians. Now he's preaching Christ. He has, he has a calling from God. He knows what he's there for. So what is the holdup? What's going on? What else needs to happen? What in the world could be going on right now for three Years. Have you ever been in a place where you're just wondering, you know, why the promises in your life seem so delayed? Where God like spoke to you and he's like, you know, this is what's going to happen. This is what I've called you to. And this is what I'm, I'm going to do in your family. This one. And three years later, you're like, what in the world is the holdup? Why haven't you changed them yet? Right? You ever feel like you're kind of in this place where you're in the white space of the in-between? Where you feel like everybody else's book is being written and you're like on pause in the white space, right there, right there. Everybody else is seemingly going on, but have you ever gotten to the place where you think, man, I thought I'd be further along than I am now? I mean, even for me, like, for 20 years of being saved, it's like, I thought I'd be further along than I am now. You ever feel like you're just stuck? 
in the white space. The interesting thing is, is that this white space, this in-between, is, is common as we look throughout the Bible. I know we think that the pain, the struggle, the white space that we're in is just only us. And everybody else, their book is being written. In fact, they're, they're, they're chapters into it further than we are. And we're just stuck in this white space. I just want you to understand, like, this is, is kind of normal. We can look throughout the Bible. Um, let me give you some examples. God called Moses to lead God's people out of Egypt. And then what happened? White space. He spends 40 years in the desert working for his father-in-law. How horrible would that be? He's, he's herding sheep in the desert for 40 years until he becomes the deliverer that he was called to be. That's some white space there. David, King David, right? He's anointed by God to be the next king of Israel. You know, he's got literally like the oil dripping down his little pubescent beard, right? He's like, oh, this is, what did he do the very next day? Did he go get fitted for his crown? No, white space. Next several years, he's still herding sheep and trying to not get killed by the current king until he is finally ascends to the, sit on the throne that he was called to sit on. God told Joseph, you're going to be, you know, I'm going to use you to save many lives in Israel. And then what happened? White space. He spends over a decade in slavery and in prison and wondering where in the world is this great thing that God has called me to before Pharaoh puts him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Do you ever feel like you're just in the midst of white space of many days? Can I exhort you in something this morning? Don't waste your white space. Stop wishing away your white space. Stop looking at it as a, as, a, as a blip on the radar of your highlight reel thinking that nothing is happening. Stop asking God, God, what, what, do, you, what do you want me to do? And just start asking him, God, what, who do you want me to become? Because it's in the white space. This, it's in this little spot right here. It's in that white space where God does some of his most instrumental things in your life. And it doesn't make the highlight reel. It, it seems like, God, I don't know what you're doing, but it's in the white space where he is building your character so that your giftings don't take you to a place where your character cannot sustain you. It's in the white space where God is doing something in you right now so that he can move through you later. And part of the, part of the preparation that Saul went through was pain, suffering. Let me just tell you, that does not build a really good megachurch. But it's this reality that we see all throughout believers why would it be different for us? C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. <laughs> You're going to wave your white hanky on that one, right? It's a good one. So before Saul of Tarsus is known as the Apostle Paul, he had to experience three things, opposition, preparation, and persecution. We just read them. Opposition, preparation, and persecution. 
And the third point is this, that Paul was chosen by God, yet he suffered greatly. Persecution. Jesus literally said that the presence of persecution is proof of following him. Let me read it for you in John 15, verse 20. He says, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. In other words, don't worry when you're persecuted. Be concerned when you're not. Like the presence of persecution should not cause you to doubt the presence of God in your life. Maybe it confirms it. And I understand this is like a flipping around of our heads to realize that like sometimes the, the pain that you may be going through is actually proof that God's hand is on you, not the other way around. Hmm. So what happened during these three years? We're not completely sure. He doesn't, there's hints of it throughout Scripture. Um, I think some of these things that I'm about to read to you happened maybe during these three years. Some of them happened outside because it couldn't all be compressed into three years. This, check out some of Paul's white space moments. This is his highlight reel of white space. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. I want you to imagine his back. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. Spent a night and a day in open sea. <laughs> I've been constantly on the move. I've never, I've, I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. And I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And this is the highlight reel. And any one of those has the power of derailing us. Come on, let's be honest. But there's something about this guy, like this Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, that like wrote most of the New Testament. Is there something, is there something different about him? Like, is he a superhero? How does he go through these things? Like, for Saul, what the enemy meant for evil, God turned it for good, and he never wasted his pain, and he never wasted his white space, because his Savior never did. Hebrews 5.8 says this, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And if Jesus learned obedience through suffering, why would we think it would be any different for us? This was part of Saul's process, right? We talked about this, like opposition, preparation, and persecution. Opposition, preparation, and persecution are some of the very few things that reveal to us what is truly in us. Think about this, opposition. 
we don't really know what is truly in us until we're confronted by our enemies. Friends don't bring that out of us. Our enemies do. We, we, we don't really know what's really in us until we are accused, until we have enemies in our life that pull out the things that, that are in us. Opposition does that. Preparation. We don't really know what we know until we're tested. You don't, you don't really know. That's why we have tests in school, right? You don't know what you know until you've taken a quiz, a test, or an exam until you, okay, now I know that I know that I know what I know. Until then, you don't know what you know. It only comes through preparation. It only comes through testing. And the third thing is persecution. Our obedience is tested only when following God costs us something of ourselves. Sometimes we think that we're following God and then he calls us to go to a place or do something or, or, or forgive or, or, or walk into something that we really don't want to go into. And then we quickly find out, am I following God or am I following myself? Am I just going for a walk? That only comes through persecution when we're, when we're tested. And I think Paul would say the struggle is real. Um, don't run away from it because it is, it is the struggle that ultimately builds your faith. What if Paul becomes the powerhouse of the Apostle Paul because he chose to walk through the white space of his opposition and persecution and preparation? Amen? Why don't you stand with me? So I know it got really heavy. It's the, uh, it's the best message you never wanted to hear. And uh, it gets better here, verse 27, in a good way. It starts out with this, but Barnabas. Can I just tell you, whenever you see Barnabas show up anywhere, you're like, oh, thank God Barnabas showed up. This guy, he's the best. I mean, he, he, literally his name is Son of Encouragement. And when he shows up, he just makes everything better. Like everybody needs a Barnabas in their life. Because here's the reality. I can't and nobody else can walk through the struggle for you, but we can walk through the struggle with you. Amen? That's the beauty of why we need the body of Christ in our lives. Because I can't walk through it for you, but I can put my arm around your shoulder and say, it's okay, you're going to make it, we're going to push through this, we're going to walk through this together. I can't do it for you, but I can walk through it with you. And this is the beauty of this guy, Barnabas. He is so amazing. He essentially believes the best in Saul rather than expect the worst, which was what everyone else was doing. Can I just tell you, it is so easy, especially in our day and age, to dig up dirt on people. It's the harder thing to mine the gold out of someone. It is so, it is low-hanging fruit. You want to go dig up dirt on somebody, you know, it's easy. Just surf around on the internet, you're going to find something. It's the harder thing to see the gold in someone and say, I'm going to work to mine that out of them because they're worth it. I know what everyone else is saying. Aren't, aren't, isn't that the same guy that wreaked havoc in Saco? Yeah, but there's something in him. There's something that God has got in him, and I'm going I'm to mine the gold out of that guy. That's how Barnabas saw people. And I want you to understand, when he says like he, he was the son of encouragement, it doesn't mean that we just walk around and just say, well, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. Because sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes encouragement is just coming along with somebody and say, you know what, we're going to make it. 
You're going to get through this. You're going to walk through this white space. You're not going to shrink back from it. You're not going to run away from it. You're going to stand in it over the long haul and allow God to do what he's, what he's wanting to do in you in this white space that you'd rather shorten and get away from and, and circumvent and get around and run away from. We're going to do this. We're going to pass this test. We're going to work through this persecution. We're not going to allow the opposition to have a hold on us so God can be glorified and we can grow. So as we sing here today, I just want to encourage you, like, maybe for some of you, and look, at this is the time in, in the service, like, don't worry about who's beside you, who's in front of you, who's behind you, who's looking at you. Nobody is. Maybe you're in this place where you're like, you know what? In this area of my life, I feel, maybe it is my life, I feel like I am in this holding pattern. I feel like this white space of in-between where... The promises of God are delayed and the calling of God seems on pause and I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing and I feel lost and untethered and I feel like I don't have my people and I feel like this friend group has left or this has changed and I don't necessarily know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. I just want to encourage you. If that's you right now, I just want to encourage you just between you and, and the Lord, just slip your hand up and it's not, not to notify me or anyone else. It's just saying, God, I, I'm there. I'm there. I'm there right now. And I don't like it. I'm not proud of it. I, but I see it and I'm frustrated by it. And I just want to run. I just want to run. Because it doesn't seem to be working. What I want to do for those of you that are in that place right now, I just want to read this over you. And it's the words of Paul, the same guy, Saul of Tarsus. And it sums up how he viewed his white space. This is the same guy that I read his, his highlight reel over you. Let me, let me just read this over you as a prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. The words of Saul of Tarsus. He says, but we have this treasure. You have this treasure in jars of clay to show that all surpassing power is from God and not from us. And then he says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. You're not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. You are not in despair. Struck down, but not destroyed. You're not destroyed. Therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day day, many days, for our light and momentary trouble are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so, Lord, for those of us that are in this place where they feel like they're in the in-between of the white space of life, feeling like everybody else around them is getting their book written and we're on pause, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us some of the things that you're wanting to, to move and to make and to break and to form in us so that we can become more like you, so that the things that you're doing in us right now can be used to flow through us later. Lord, we submit not just to the highlight reel of the things that you want to do, we submit to the low light reel. But quite honestly, I think that God, you kind of see things upside down from us. I think sometimes you see the white space as those times of closeness. I mean, you see, cra you see crazy things. Like I am, I am near to the brokenhearted. What? 
you're near, you're near to the brokenhearted. Like in the midst of our pain, you're closer. Lord, we thank you that you give us not just promises of, of higher heights, but God, I, you give us promises that you're there with us in the middle of the lowest lows. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. So Lord, we thank you. And may it be a reminder to us today as we, as we sing this song, as we lift your name up, may it be a reminder to us that you have never left us nor forsaken us, that your hand is on us and that the opposition and the persecution and the white space does not negate the calling that you've placed over us. But Lord, may we hear your voice in the midst of it. So we thank you and we lift you up. Let's worship him together, church.